At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Paris Masick of Green on Purpose and Kinsaya to talk about food hubs and small farmers. Paris is the Managing Director for Green on Purpose and the Director of Agriculture Programs for Kinsaya Social Enterprise. He is also a PhD candidate at Arizona State University in English Literature, working with Indigenous American Literatures and Cultures. He is an active member of the Maricopa County Food Systems Coalition, as well as an urban gardener who uses raised beds, edible landscaping, and a flock of chickens in his downtown Phoenix resident to keep fresh produce and eggs on his family's dinner table. Welcome to the show today, Paris. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, it's it's a long and sorted tale, but um, I was born we and like raised... those. <laughs> I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and uh, it was a megatropolis even back in the 50s. My parents encouraged me to go into the field of medicine. And wow. I, I was in the right field. I was in biology, but that isn't where I ended up. But... What happened along the way is that my dad was a farmer. He uh-huh. got drafted into the Navy in World War II. Wow. And when he was discharged, he was in Long Beach, and that's where he met my mother. And, mm-hmm. of course, that's where I came along after that process. But, you know, he was living a, a farmer 
living in a big city. <laughs> and he always took me fishing, even though deep sea fishing right. or in the mountains. Yep. And every summer we would go back to the farm. And I always enjoyed the farm because, number one, it was a big dichotomy from what Los Angeles was. Oh, no you know, kidding. Concrete, smog. I, I ran cross country in high school. We used to not have practice due to smog alerts. And you went back to Missouri in wow. central Missouri on the farm, and there was no smog. Right. And you could smell when the rain came. You could smell mm, the ozone and the nice. fresh mowed hay and yep. all that stuff. Yeah. So those were the seedlings of what was to come. And I eventually got disenchanted with working in medicine. I worked in hospitals while I was going to school, but I was a biology major. Mm -hmm. So I switched over to fish because, number one, the fish don't talk back. Oh, that's uh, true. That's you, true. Working in hospitals, you learn that those patients or or your clientele mm -hmm. uh, tend to have voices. And granted, they're in not good health. That's why they're there. But um, So why fish? Why did you choose fish? Well, the school I was going to, Occidental College, uh -huh. uh, had a marine biology program. Oh, nice. And we also had working jobs, so we worked in the field. Mm-hmm. So we had a research vessel called the Van Tuna. We went out and did student teaching on oh, it. Oh, nice. I was a research diver and worked in the laboratory, so those type of things. Uh -huh. so it, it was akin to biology, even though it was fish biology versus human biology. Uh -huh. And it piqued my interest. And again, I still haven't boiled down to the essence of it, but that's just what it's what something kept driving me forward. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. The summer trips to Missouri helped. And, you know, when I was going back there, I used to, my dad used to have those little metal shoehorns that articulated to the capture. And I always remember it because I was going back to the farm and I was a little kid playing with those like I was plowing a field. Oh, nice. So right. it, it's something that I was tracking on. Uh-huh. So in 1980, I was just finishing up college in marine biology and decided it was time to get out of L.A. So I moved <laughs> to Missouri, central Missouri, because you know, that's where my dad was from. Right. So I wanted to learn how to do things differently. Mm -hmm. Went back there, tried to cut wood for a living for a while. That didn't work out so well, but uh, I appreciated the learning experience. Yeah. I worked in a testing lab. I did cardiovascular research at the University of Missouri, again, all because of my biological background. Mm -hmm. And then I saw a job advertised at a fish farm there. And I oh, said, oh, nice. You're actually trained for that. I was actually trained for that. <laughs> wow. Plus, it was farming. You know, it started out as fish farming. They, mm -hmm. Aquaculture is kind of something that came on afterwards. Right. And then finally, they decided that they would put aquaculture and agriculture because it kind of had the name had culture on the end. right <laughs> so the people i went to work with were down at lake of the ozarks and they did things differently they appreciated the academic world but they also appreciated the practical knowledge of, of right. a farm and they had just over 300 surface acres of, of farms wow this was small compared to some of the places in arkansas and mississippi yeah. where thousands of surface acres of ponds but you don't plow a pond <laughs> you sane a pond yeah unique thing that they did was that they got into niche marketing and so one of the things that affects us here in central arizona mm -hmm. is the grass carp that srp puts in the canals to keep the the 
Algae away. Algae away. Yep. And grass. You know, anything that clogs the intakes or impedes the flow of the canal. Right. But fishing game requires that those fish be sterile. Right. To prove that the fish is sterile, you have to, when once the egg is fertilized, you have to pressurize it at like 1,500 pounds for two minutes. Mm-hmm. And it causes a genetic defect in the egg, so you can tell the nucleus is bigger. Oh. You then have to take each fish and take a sample of blood. So taking blood out of an inch and a half fish is, is a challenge. And then you have to run it through a coulter counter, which is... While the fish is still alive. The, keeping the fish alive. Oh, my gosh. And to determine the size of the blood cell to prove that it's sterile. Mm-hmm. The thing is that you will end up being able to sell that fish that's inch and a half, two inches long, once you certify that it's sterile, between 9 and $13 per fish. Oh, got it. And that's what you were doing at this fish farm. That's one of the things that they were yeah. doing. But almost everything that they did, you know, the big farms in Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, how many fish can we get out of this pond? Mm-hmm. Okay. And typically it's, it's just one culture of fish. It's a catfish pond. Right. It's a carp pond. Um, Here in Arizona, it's tilapia. Tilapia. Yeah. Except in the wintertime because they die at 55 degrees. Right. <laughs> but what they started was polyculture, so putting multiple species in one oh, pond. Oh, right. Okay. And they did the grass carp, and they started selling fingerlings. And so they kept adding and doing very unique marketing niches. Interesting. Sounds very permaculture to me. Yes. Extremely so. Yeah. They would go to golf courses. Hey, you want to keep your pond clean without dump- dumping a bunch of chemicals in it? Mm-hmm. We'll put uh, big head carp, which is a filter feeder that eats the algae. We'll put grass carp in there that eats the grass. Uh-huh. And, well, whoa, yeah, that sounds great. You know, no chemicals and you're putting the fish in. How much would that cost us? Nothing. We'll just come back once a year and harvest the fish. Oh, nice. So they were using it as a place to grow the fish out. Yes. Nice. So, you know, little, love that. Things, little niche marketing things that... The mass production of agriculture doesn't cover. I, now, I suspect all along these are planting seeds in your mind for something. Oh, absolutely. For it, something. It's a complete evolutionary process that's still ongoing, at least for me. Yeah. So I had all these other jobs, hospital jobs, testing jobs, cardiovascular research jobs. But I just enjoy going down with, with the family that I work with and getting into a pond at 4 a.m. in the morning and pulling out <laughs> 10,000 pounds of fish. Right. And, and at the end of the day, you go have a nice, frosty, uh, cold adult beverage and talk about the day's work and do the same thing the next nice. day. Good, but there's also day an of work. intellectual process yeah. going on. Yeah, exactly. So with their guidance, I got into developing a product that super concentrates oxygen in water. So uh-huh. you can raise more. And then I got into closed loop systems. So that's where I got into recirculating systems. And then that got onto aquaponics. Oh, Again, yeah. Niche, I wondered if you were going to aquaponics. Niche marketing you know, going on all the time. Yeah. Because that's what I learned from them. That's, you know, just the way it was. So anyway, started r- brokering fish mm-hmm. from around central Missouri. Started doing consulting work on high-density recirculating systems. Well, unfortunately, uh, the business was going relatively well. I was selling to restaurants, Mm -hmm. taking these fish, essentially conglomerating them from a four-state area, and then selling them to local entities in central Missouri. We'll come back to that one. I was going to say, this sounds like what you're doing now, and that was, what, 30 years ago? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, 
it, it, it's interesting how things come full, full yeah. circle. So I got divorced in 1992, and my parents lived out here, and I came out here to take care of him. And I tried to get into the fish business. That didn't work uh-huh. too well. There's not really a lot of extensive aquaculture here in the state of Arizona. <laughs> surprise, surprise, the yeah. middle of the desert. <laughs> so got a job. Um, I met my current wife. She told me I had to get a real job because I was working on a fish farm, and it was only part-time. And yeah. So I went to work for the airline management. And again, this is kind of like being back in medicine for me. I'm removed from growing things, Uh from handling things, thinking intuitively, being creative with the way I go about doing things, Uh just working for a large corporation, um, throwing bags and managing flight operations. Yeah. So in the meantime, I said my wife encouraged me to go back to school. So that's where I got into uh, getting a degree in literature, and I took a class from a Native American gentleman named Simon Ortiz. Oh, nice. And he said, hey, you really should go to grad school. And I was just about to finish my master- master's, and he said, you know, your work really justifies a Ph.D., so that's why I'm almost finishing up there. Nice. Congratulations. Yes. So in that, And you're you're overlaying that, though, on a lot of work that you're doing here, a food hub, and can say uh, so tell us about that yeah so anyway let me connect the dots here i went to sign on at south mountain community college to teach english but there was a dean there that was interested in aquaculture oh oh, nice so i was networking and tripped over the people that that had started kinsaya Mm -hmm. and so that's how i eventually evolved into being the agriculture director for Kinsaya and Green on Purpose. Nice. That's, that's how I got there. Perfect. It's, and what is Kinsaya? Kinsaya is a social venture that works with people with disabilities and eventually American veterans to provide them vocational training. Hmm. So what we're doing is using agricultural jobs. I'm working in a garden, transporting vegetables, har- harvest, harvesting produce. Uh-huh. Is the vocational setting for these people to acquire the skills that they need to move beyond just being taken care of to becoming working, self-sustaining people. Therefore, the name Green on Purpose involved. Oh, yes. Help giving these people purpose, and agriculture is doing it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. Green on Purpose. Oh, nice. All right, cool. That's that's how Kinsaya and Green on Purpose work together yeah collectively it's interesting that the location we currently are at which is on south central in phoenix is on a street called cody and this is how interesting to me things come full circle Uh cody is actually an old hohokam canal oh cody is also an old jack swilling canal because when he came along in the middle 1800s he built a lot of the canals were built in old hohokam canals right then the area was agricultural after that, and the A.J. Bagulis family actually owned a lot of this property right. there. So we're right in that setting. That Believe it or not, the agricultural setting of South Phoenix is now, due to the growth of the city, considered what's called a food desert. Oh, yes. So the produce that was once there is no longer there. It has to be brought in, but there's social, social economic, and mm-hmm. um, logistical barriers that don't allow that to happen right 
So we're at that location of what's called Pueblo Viejo, Old Pueblo Viejo, the Hohokam, the Jack Swilling and the A.J. Bayless in central Phoenix. So that's where the quote-unquote food hub is going. Cool. So what is a food hub? What is a food hub? A food hub is, if you can picture a wheel with okay. a hub at the middle. Right. One of the buzzwords that's floating around in the industry is aggregation. Oh, so yes. a lot of small farmers do not have the ability to, beyond harvesting their crops, uh-huh. they don't want to take the time or don't have the the monetary value to transport that item right. to market, to store it, to process it, and then to sell it. Yeah. So what the food hub does is draws in from all the spokes, all the the these small producers that are on the periphery uh-huh. of the market that don't produce enough to sell to the wholesalers or the, or the compilers, right? they'd have to do direct marketing. So it mm-hmm. provides that logistical service for them. And this, is, this is a really important concept coming down the line here. Oh, yes. Yeah. We've applied for a grant that actually applies to both this. Uh, it's called the Local Food promotion program right and it takes the idea of putting food hubs into food deserts Mm. to provide fresh local food to people that need it the most right and it's just very (laughs) this full circle thing that we were talking about earlier Uh for me my indigenous academic training fits into the biological training fits into the location that we're at fits into what the the uh, people in the know are trying to solve is getting right. fresh local food into food deserts. That's really important. It's That's, extremely important. Yeah. It's not just the fact that you're getting good food there. It's the byproduct of that is that you can improve the bottom health line uh, by getting fresh product. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that, hey, here's here's the fruit stand or here's the vegetable stand. It's the idea that we're going to put nutritional education, provide recipes, do community outreach. Oh, that's the full circle again. Full circle You're making again. sure they get everything. Right. Nice. A, a lot of people that immigrated to the United States came from agricultural settings. Uh-huh. Again, here's the full circle thing. This area used to be agriculture. It is no more. Right. Second or third generation here, they are losing those agricultural, not that agricultural knowledge. When you say here, you're speaking of the Phoenix metropolitan area here. In this case specifically, but across the nation. Yeah. It's a reproducible uh, model wherever you put it. Mm-hmm. So by finding other unique methods of marketing and moving your product out there, you can start to raise the awareness of, of fresh local food and what it does when you can get it, consume it, and prepare it easily. Yeah. So you actually run a food hub. Yes. Great. Tell us about your food hub. Who, you know, where does the food come from? Like what kind of foods are there? Where's it going? Well, right now, until we get our market assembled, mm-hmm. it's going straight from local farmers to the end producers, which are restaurants and kitchens to prepare food for local schools. Right. We eventually, on this property that we have, we have a 1.5, we're going to put a demonstration agricultural unit in it. 1.5 acres. 1.5 acres. Uh That will, again, here we come full circle, on the old Hohokam Canal, on the old agricultural area of South Phoenix. Mm -hmm. We're going to put agricultural, hope to put agricultural demonstration back in place. Nice. But we'll be able to serve or or offer this food 
along with the nutritional education, food yeah. preparation education, uh, not only from what we produce, but from the other farmers as well. Because yeah. we will be SNAP approved. We are SNAP approved. <laughs> Just got the notice two weeks ago. Congratulations. So, so we, we, we're doing a stratified market that not only will still continue to get to the real uh, uh, restaurants, right. but we'll be able to provide it on, you know, not every crop that comes out is, is a prime is a prime crop. They're right. secondary and tertiary. And a lot of those products end up, you know, uh, what, 50, 60% of them goes into the landfill is food right. and yard waste. Yep. That's crazy, isn't it? It's insane. Yeah. Because there's so much viable product out there that we will take the second and tertiary product and use it in these other venues. What doesn't get used will be donated to food banks. What doesn't get used by the food banks, we will compost. compost. So Perfect. it's all done. The, the cycle that circle is again. Yep. Gotta love it. Yep. Gotta love it. The, the, the buzzword, I think, that goes with that is food chain. It's the complete food chain mm. itself. But the chain is a circle. Yeah, a circular economy, I think, is the word that's, right. yeah, that's used. There's a lot of terms out there, and you know, people can call it whatever they want. It's it's still the it's still the hub. It's still the chain. Yeah, it's still exactly. a circle. So, what kinds of food are you aggregating uh, in your food hub? The, the one of the farms that I work with out in the West Valley, mm-hmm. he's a fruit grower. Oh. So he just harvested apples. Uh, prior to that, he just harvested harvested peaches. Peaches. Yeah. Uh, he has a huge pomegranate orchard. Uh-huh. And the little thing that's been the most interesting is a little fruit called a calamansi. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that to me yes, the other yes. day. Tell everybody what that is. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's a small, it's it's out of, the, out of the Philippines. Uh-huh. It's a cross between a kumquat and a tangerine. It's very small. Oh. It's it's wild. And then, you know, typically you har- harvest your citrus once a year and you're done. Right. Calamansies start blooming in December, January. You can start harvesting in March, and you continually harvest until October, November. Oh wow! So it's a continuous product. The, About the size of a golf ball, maybe. Uh, that would be a big calamansi. Oh, all right. Uh, we're talking a large grape up to golf ball size. Oh, interesting. Different uh, ethnic markets want different colors. There's so there's green. There's green, yellow, and there's orange. Oh wow! And depending on which market you're selling to, mm-hmm. but what we found is is that there's a lot of other people interested in the product. the The fruit there's about fifty three of them to a pound. A pound of calamansies makes eight ounces of juice. Mm. Very and hardly any pulp. It's extremely tart. So those people that like to cook with um, ornamental or sour oranges uh-huh. it's very similar in taste to that we've made sorbet out of it oh, we've made nice. juice out of it if you would like it adult beverage goes great with bourbon oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it, you know it it's a very versatile you can marinate meat with it. it it's extremely versatile wow so working with individuals as we do that that are have developmental disabilities when we go out there to harvest it it's very Time and, and labor intensive because right. you have to go snip each one with a oh, pair of scissors. Oh, right, to get it off the yeah. If, tree. if you're dealing with something grape size, that's time intensive. Oh yeah, big time. 
The thing is, it's it's not just that we're harvesting the fruit and providing the food hub services for a small farmer. It's the opportunity for these kids to, kids, they're adults, to interact with other people, right. with their peers, while they're learning vocational skills, while they're also getting paid for the work that they do. Nice. So the calamansi is just... just <laughs> and Icing you, on the cake? Yeah. When you pick them and put them in a room, the fragrance, they're high in essential oils. The oh, fragrance nice. is just, oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Fantastic. So uh, other products? Please. Uh, another gentleman down south, he has 3,000 pounds of onions, red, whites, and yellows. Wow. Huge onions. And they're just amazing in flavor. They're so mild. Mm-hmm. Corn, squashes, leeks. So these are the type of farms that we're finding that they're big enough to grow these crops that they can't sell it all to UPIC operations. Right. And a lot of it goes to waste there on the site some of the time if they can't move the if rest of the product. It. Yeah. Uh, the that's bird, sad. The birds eat it. That's very sad. And... There's organizations that, uh, such as Recycled City, that right. are, are buying this type of stuff. But if you can do it all in one fail swoop, in other words, yeah. we'll take everything you have, we'll stratify the market from prime uh, to prime, secondary, and tertiary. Mm-hmm. We will try to get all the product moved or sold or at least given away. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully what little is left over will be composted and either given back to the farmers or we will use in our demonstration farm. Yeah. There's that circular thing again. Yes. You know, I I talk about that a lot uh, because I really believe that it's the... It's the next place we need to go as a culture. And a big part of that connector is making sure that we don't have any waste. Yes, absolutely. You know, the... The Native Americans, when archaeologists go to a site, uh-huh. they look at the trash, they call them the trash piles, <laughs> yeah. where, they, where they dig. But Native, a lot of Native American beliefs is, is when they're doing something, it returns to the soil. Uh-huh. So we in the westernized culture mind call it a trash heap. They call it a place of, of artifacts that are mm. culturally significant to right. them. And it's not just a waste product that's put out there. That's the type of approach I think we should take with what we we don't understand or fully appreciate the value in what we discard. Yeah, there's value to it, and there's good things that can be brought from it. Yeah, again, completing the circle. Right. Perfect. So, can you talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it? Well, I'm gonna. Reveal one of the things I don't like to talk about. Okay, good. Love that. I was one of the reasons I left LA in 1980, besides wanting to get back to the farm, is I was burning up on reentry. And I was, I never fully graduated with my degree in marine biology. Oh. I needed the last semester of Spanish and the last semester of physics to get my degree. Oh, wow. And so I quit. I quit. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to Missouri. I always regretted that, and I regretted it. The main reason is that none of my family had a college education, Uh and I wanted to do that for my father. It doesn't matter if I had a degree in a bachelor's in basket weaving. I just would have liked that, and he passed away before I got my Mm. my degree. So I always regretted that. But at the same time, I took the value of that lesson away from it is stick to it 
if, if you have a dream and you may not always realize the dream. Right. You know, when I was playing with the little things, the idea of the farmer never sunk in, but that's kind of what I wanted to be. Right. And that's what I'm ending up being, even though it's kind of <laughs> with a modern connotation to it. Right. So never give up on your dreams and sticking to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the lesson I, I I I learned all this biology and I never put it to full use. Yeah. Until I got back to Missouri, until I met um, the Cars family that, that runs Osage Cat Fisheries. That's a facility I was talking about. Right. And learned how to meld together the academic and the the real world applications uh-huh. on the farm itself. I finally realized that all the life experiences I had kind of congealed in that moment and made it like one of those oh wow moments when you finally realize that that was it so you're you're working on your PhD so you must have finished your bachelor's I finished my bachelor's at ASU and and like I said that's when I met Simon Ortiz and right um, proceeded on to graduate school out of bachelor's so I got that degree but the only thing is is that my dad wasn't here to to see it yeah my dad made a big impact on my life too so i know he did for you it, it was huge because you know just when i was a little kid just the idea that you would take your son out and you know i was used to all the f- f- uh, fancy city things and yep my dad had that bib pair of overalls that he'd wear <laughs> and he'd go out we'd go out albacore fishing and he oh, would take me along nice, even though right? i was pint size uh-huh and that that was a big impact on me yeah well, look where I am. Look, look how I involved with fish. Look how I got involved with farming. Yeah. Even though commercial fishing is is not essentially farming, it is a type of. Farming. It's a type of. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if you're catching it in the ocean or seining it out of a pond. It's it's still relying on a natural resource to provide sustenance, sustenance for us and exercise yeah. when you're out taking care well, of it. There you go. What do you consider your biggest success? You know, I, I wish I would have had this biggest success earlier, but where I've arrived at now is uh-huh. putting all these various skills to use. And mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. I'm right at the right, right point right now because I can sit down and talk to people and share these experiences and put the knowledge to work. I'm not going to say anything bad about young entrepreneurs, but if you haven't gone through the process before, there's... I know some of the mistakes I did in starting yep. out my own fish business yep. that I am not making now. And I want to share those 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 lessons with other people. Now, if they want to listen, that's fine. If they don't, they can go that's through the school too. of hard knocks and yep. they'll get there. Well, and a lot of what we do is hard knocks. I mean, that's just how we learn best, I think. Yes. The lesson's well learned. The tuition is high. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. So and, and so what? so that where I'm arriving at now uh-huh. is is the epitome of my success because the people I interact with are coming and asking questions of me and I have answers that seem to make sense to them. Mm-hmm. And when I can do that, that gives me a sense of accomplishment and it also excites me that I can be able to share that knowledge with them. Hopefully that will prevent them from going through similar mistakes. Yeah. But also, maybe I can meet people of like minds, such as yourself, and we can go move on to bigger and better things and how we hybrid those ideas together. Yeah. So what drives you? 
the memory of my dad drives me a lot. He was a driven person. He had a ninth grade education. And when he was in the Navy, he sold insurance. But he had a captain over him that was supposed to be selling the insurance. So the captain gave my dad an Admiral's launch to go around to the different boats in Long Beach Harbor uh -huh. to sell the GI Bill to before the sh boat shipped out to the Pacific Theater in World War II. Wow. There has to be something that people saw in him to, to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And so the, I, I, I tried to exemplify what he did and how he did it. He worked like just <laughs> nonstop. He, he was, I always joked with my dad, I says, you're going to go, when you pass on, you're going to go run, jump in the coffin and pull the lid shut. The day, <laughs> the day before he died, he was on his hands and knees in the kitchen scrubbing the floor. He passed away the next day. Yeah. So I, I wanted to do that type of, of honor to him by following his way of doing things. Yeah. And one of the things that he did was was volunteerism. He says, "You at some point you have to give back to the community in which you live, <laughs> otherwise you're not leaving it a better place." Right. So that's why the idea of putting the idea with aquaculture, agriculture, indigenous thought processes together in this in a volunteer setting <laughs> was so appealing. Wow, it kind of threads everything. Literally threads everything together for yes, you. Yes, it does. Wow. Perfect. And it's, it's powerful. Oh, yeah. Well, food is powerful, and, you know, you're feeding us. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> we're, we're giving it more purpose. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book that you uh, have that has been significantly impactful for you? Well, I, I'm going to have to defer to my, it's called Woven Stone. And it's a conglomeration of three different uh, books of work by Simon Ortiz. Oh, interesting. And a lot of my dissertation uh, uh, revolves around uh, the material aspects of animals, in specific case coyote, in indigenous literature and the uh -huh. lessons that they teach of, teach it, have taught us. I mean, they come out in, in Native American stories. Right. That they're they're like religious parables, except they're meant to instruct by how they're told. And indigenous people live more in contact in nature than we currently do. That's uh -huh. where the idea of animals teaching. And even if it, if you want to expand upon that, animals and nature itself, the nature that they're setting, in, uh -huh. are teaching us lessons. Right. Look at the land and where we're at with this project used to be an indigenous canal, used to be a farming community. Right. That went away. There's a materialism found in that setting that that impacts that. Mm -hmm. So Woven Stone, to me, tells a lot of those stories. The, one of the quotes I like using out of that is, I know it's so because Coyote told me. Oh, nice. So Coyote doesn't speak. How did Coyote tell uh -huh. tell him? And he's talking about, in the context of that poem, he's talking about the creation of the earth and how we go along. So I, I think we need to listen. The, the reason that book is so impactful for me is all uh -huh. the, the thoughts and processes that I've extracted with it that apply to nature, that apply to 
what we're talking about with food and right. sustainability and all the green factors. Perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Stick with it, no matter what, no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how, how many people tell you you're all wet, you're doing <laughs> something wrong. Uh-huh. If, if your gut, if your inner tuition tells you to uh, do something, uh, l- let's not say illegal, okay, tells you, if your gut tells you that this is the way you should do it, I think you should stick with it to the nth degree. Yeah. And that's, again, um, the lesson learned from my father, lesson learned from my academic training, yeah. lesson learned from my own life experiences, all tell me that, that that's why I'm arriving at, at the age I am now is this is where I want to be. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Perry. It's been a treat chatting with you. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's a joy to know you and other people that are thinking green. Well, thank you. And so how can our listeners get a hold of you? Several ways. Kinsea, you can get a hold of us at uh, our website, which is Kinsea, Q-U-I-N-C-E-A dot O-R-G. Perfect. You can contact me at Green On Purpose at Green On Purpose, Inc., all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need 
to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.